0: Once again, this morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 13, and uh, started last week with verses 1 to 5 of this passage. This morning we'll be completing this passage, Lord willing, with uh, with verses 6 to 9. So Luke chapter 13, and I'll read all of, of verses 1 to 9. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until they dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you could cut it down. This is the word of God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. our Lord and our God, as we approach this passage of Scripture. Lord, we do so with fear and trembling for in this passage we see you. And in this passage we see us. And we see your holiness and your justice and your righteousness. And we know what would happen to us were we to fall under these things, under your wrath, for that is indeed what we deserve. But we praise you, Lord, that we also see in this passage, we see your grace and your mercy and your goodness and your patience and your love. And Lord, we praise you that that we who are your children, your sons and daughters, receive all of these things through Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, help me, I pray. I am weak. I am powerless. There is nothing that I can do, but I am confident in your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, work in the hearts of people this morning. Work in the hearts of your people who are already in a saving relationship with you that we might see the gospel and that through through this reminder of the gospel that we would be empowered and equipped, Lord, to bring forth more fruit for your glory. Lord, for those who are here this morning as as unbelievers but are are walking in unrepentant sin, we pray that you would help them as well through the power of your Holy Spirit to to see the gospel and to be reminded of, of what you are calling them to, not in order to earn their righteousness, but as recipients of your righteousness. Lord, for any who are here as unbelievers this morning. Lord, as those who have not yet called on Jesus Christ and not yet turned to Him in repentance and faith, we pray also, Holy Spirit, that you you would work in their hearts, that you would grant them repentance to life, that you would cause them to be born again, cause them to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. When Bad Things Happen to Good People is the title of a book published by Rabbi Harold Kushner in 1981. And this book chronicled how, how Rabbi Kushner wrestled with grief over the death of his son four years earlier at the age of only 14 to a rare disease. And in writing the book, Krishna sought to offer comfort to others who were facing their own grief. And as such, the book is an attempt at, at theodicy, the vindication of God in response to the problem of evil in the world. And so the, the foundational question is, is how can a good God allow evil in his world? Rabbi Kushner was trying to answer the question of why the universe created and governed by a good God could be so full of suffering and pain. Now, clearly others had the same question because this book was on top of the New York Times bestseller list for many, many weeks, and it remains very popular today. So how did Rabbi Kushner try to answer the question of how a good God can allow evil? Why does he conclude, as his title says, that bad things happen to good people? He says, and I quote, Bad things do happen to good people in this world, but it is not God who wills it. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he cannot always arrange it. He said, forced to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good, the author of the book of Job chooses to believe in God's goodness. Do you see what he's saying here? Rabbi Kushner is is saying that, okay, well, grant that God is good, but God is not really sovereign. God is not really in control. such frankly. God is not really God. You can see the problem right even from the beginning, right from the title of his book. When bad things happen to good people. The problem is there are no good people. No one is good but God. Now I can't imagine how hard it must have been for Rabbi Kushner to deal with the death of his son. But I also can't imagine how he could possibly find any comfort in his theology. His conclusions are completely unbiblical. He does not understand theology proper and he does not understand a a biblical anthropology. Theology proper is the doctrine of God. And anthropology is the doctrine of man. Well, Rabbi Kushner's doctrine of God and his doctrine of man are expressly contrary to what is taught in the Bible. He does not know what God is like, so he cannot know what man is like. Kushner will not find the answers that he seeks because he's looking in the wrong place. He's looking to his own intellect. He's looking to his own wisdom rather than to the inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God. If Rabbi Kushner really wanted to understand who God is, he should have gone to God's Word. And not just quote certain verses out of context. If he really wanted to understand who man is, He also should have gone to God's Word for that as well. We all need to go to God's Word to guide us in understanding of who God is and who we are. Our passage this morning will will guide us into a biblical doctrine of God and a biblical doctrine of man. That's what I'd like us to see here this morning. In verses 6 and 7, the doctrine of man. and verses 8 and 9, the doctrine of God. And this, again, is a continuation of the passage we began last week. Where Jesus warns those who would come to him saying, repent or perish. Repent or perish. Those are, are powerful and profound commands that tell us a lot about God and a lot about us. Now, of course, when I talk about these things this morning, the doctrine of man and the doctrine of God, I'm not going to be able to give an exhaustive doctrine of man an exhaustive doctrine of God. But this morning, I want us to see and embrace the biblical doctrine of man and the biblical doctrine of God, especially when it comes to sin and salvation. Remember the main point that Jesus has been making since back at the beginning of chapter 12. Judgment is coming. Respond rightly to God before it is too late. Now, Judgment did not come imminently as many of the people during Jesus' day and in the early church expected. It's been 2,000 years since those events. But just because it has been delayed does not mean it is not coming, does not mean that it will not come today. So first of all, verses 6 and 7, the doctrine of man. We saw last week again in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 13 how a, a group of people had told Jesus about a group of Galileans who had been murdered by Pontius Pilate as they were in the temple offering their sacrifices. And these people, when they came to Jesus, their unasked question was, Why? Why? What's well, it's the same question that Rabbi Kushner was wondering. But Jesus doesn't tell them Why? He asks a more important and a more heart-searching question. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? It's a question that really exposes their doctrine of man. Jesus repeats essentially the same question in verse 4. Do you think that those who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus is revealing their unbiblical conclusions about others and about themselves. First, they were concluding that these people who died were more sinful than them. Second, they were concluding that that they were more sinful than them, first than other people, than them explicitly. They were thinking that they were somehow, these, these Jews who had gone to Jesus, were somehow more righteous than those who had died they concluded that that because these people died suddenly and in such a horrific way, that, that they were being punished by God. And so they also thought that they themselves were not sinful enough to be punished. Follow their logic with me. God causes the sinful to suffer. These people suffered. Therefore, they were sinful. And then the second conclusion to come to is, we have not suffered, therefore we are not sinful. Well, their premise was in one sense true, but their problem was, when it with, was with a universal application of that to this very moment. And they, were, they were trying to understand things that God's word does not tell us. We don't understand why some people suffer more than others. We don't understand either why some people are, have experienced more good times than others. Remember that all the way through the book of Job, when, when, when Job suffered and his, his friends concluded that it was because of his sin. But when you get to the end of the book of Job, Job never tells us why. Job never God never tells Job why he suffered. but we see that God was glorified through the suffering of Job. So these people who came to Jesus, their unspoken question was why? And their unspoken conclusion was that others were sinful and they weren't. Again, Jesus does not answer their unasked question. Instead, he corrects their unstated conclusion with the warning. No, I tell you, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, they they think they're righteous. They think that they are right with God. But Jesus is telling them that they're definitely not right with God. That they are under God's judgment. That they are under God's wrath. Now, it sounds harsh, but it's grace. Jesus is offering them grace. We're going to talk about that more in in the second half of the passage it sounds judgmental but this is an invitation this is a call to repentance this is a warning to turn away from sin and to put your faith in jesus christ to follow him now death came suddenly for those galileans and and those in jerusalem on whom whom the tower of siloam fell jesus is saying death may come suddenly for you as well repent before it is too late Again, do not draw conclusions that that because somebody suffers, that it means directly that they are that they are under the wrath of God. Yes, we do know that there are times when this happens. We we know that, especially when somebody is pursuing wanton sin, like for example, the, the drug addict who is, is pursuing is, per, is pursuing injecting drugs and, and all kinds of other stuff into their veins, that they may suddenly die, that they may experience. The end of this life, in the moment that they are sinning. Or, or a bank robber who is in the process of, of robbing a bank gets shot. Yes, we can see that when things like this happen, that, that sometimes this that this is God's justice. But we cannot conclude that all people who suffer are suffering because they're under the judgment of God. Likewise, we cannot conclude that just because somebody is experiencing prosperity and temporal blessing, that they under are under the the, the favor of God. If you think about, about Psalm 73 and, and Asaph, who, who said, I almost, I almost fell because I considered the wicked and I considered the way that they prosper, that they that their bodies are in fatness, they don't have trials like, like other people. But then he considered their end. He considered their end. And he understood the justice of God. So in verse 6, Peter tells and begins to tell the parable of the barren fig tree to drive the point home. I'm going to read it again. So Luke 13, 6 to 9. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, leave it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. And if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So this picture is of a a fig tree in the middle of a vineyard. Now, you don't plant a vineyard in, in, in unfertile soil. This was fertile soil. The fig tree had every opportunity to be productive, but it wasn't. And so the owner of the vineyard came during fig season, year after year after year, and found nothing. He was patient, he was merciful. For three years, he came to find figs and came up empty every time. Well, this is a picture of what God is like and his mercy and his patience. More on that in a bit. But for now, focus on what's missing. What's missing from this tree? Fruit. The fig tree wasn't producing any fruit. For three years, the fig tree wasn't producing any fruit. And so we wonder, well, well, who is in view in this parable? Who is Jesus speaking of? This is really an illustration of what Jesus spoke about in the first half of the passage. I said last week, this is really one passage. They, They really go together. The immediate people in view are those that Jesus are those to whom Jesus is speaking again they think they are righteous they think that others are sinful and that they aren't they think that they are right with god but they aren't they are the unfruitful fig tree left to our own strength we would be too rabbi kushner in his in his, his book presents an unbiblical anthropology he believes that man is good. Again, the problem is right there in the title. When bad things happen to good people. Again, there are no good people. Romans 3, 9 to 20. In Romans 3, 9 to 20, the, the Apostle Paul summarizes what he's already been saying for two chapters, that, that Jew and Gentile alike are unrighteous and under the wrath of God. And then verses 10 to 12, he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. These Jews were not good. Rabbi Kushner was not good. You are not good. I am not good. All of your righteousness and mine is as filthy rags before the Holy God. Isaiah 64, 6. We need to understand what Jesus is saying to these people. He's saying, unbelievers produce no good fruit. Your fruit reveals who you are. We saw this back in Luke 6, 43 to 45. Let's go there for a moment. Luke 6, 43 to 45. No, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So again, the fruit reveals the reality of the tree. What kind of of fruit is Jesus speaking of in Luke 6 and, and here in Luke 13? I mentioned it last week, the the fruit of repentance. Remember that John the the Baptist warned the crowds in Luke 3, 6, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's saying, and it says to them and to us, show that you are right with God by living a life that is a sharp contrast from the world and the flesh and the devil. Live a life that is different from that of unbelievers. Live a life that is full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and and you can see here that the fruit of the Spirit is contrasted with the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21 idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And This is contrasted then with the fruit of the Spirit. In verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So examine your heart. Examine your life. Is your life characterized by the works of the flesh from Galatians 5, 19 to 21, or the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 to 23? Paul David Tripp, a biblical counselor, uses an illustration. He talks about an apple tree that, that he has in his backyard. Now he lives in an apartment in Philadelphia does not have an apple tree or even a yard but it but for the sake of of illustration he talks about this apple tree in his yard and and he says that that this apple tree every year produces nothing but these these shriveled up brown mealy apples that that nobody wants to eat and so he says to his wife okay I'm going to take care of this tree and so his wife watches out the, the kitchen window. I can imagine my wife watching me doing something equally crazy. He goes out there with a, a bushel of red, shiny apples and a staple gun. And so he proceeds to, to take these apples out of the bushel and to use the staple gun to staple them onto the tree. And so from a distance, it looks like this tree is now healthy. It's all of a sudden, it's got these, these shiny red apples. What's the reality? The reality is that tree is not producing that fruit. The reality is that that tree has gone unchanged. The the, the reality of that tree is still evident by the fruit that it produces. You cannot just staple fruit, whether apples or figs, onto a diseased tree, let alone onto a dead tree. If you want to produce good fruit, you need to be engrafted to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus taught in John 14, rather 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. You can bear no fruit. But if you are in Jesus Christ, you will bear much fruit. What does your fruit say about you? Are you apart from Jesus or do you have a part with Jesus? Are you a part of Jesus' body? Are you a part of the church? If year after year your tree is producing no fruit, the order will come, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? He's saying, cut it down. It is extremely dangerous to be unfruitful, especially in light of great spiritual privileges. Think of the the privileges that these individuals had. Jesus was right there before them. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. They had the opportunity to speak to Jesus, to ask him questions. I believe the nation of Israel is in view here as well. Later in his ministry, when Jesus curses the fig tree, he does so as an an active parable to, to describe the nation of Israel. Think of the privileges that Israel had. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans 3, 2. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9, 4, and 5. There were great privileges for Israel and great privileges for these specific Jews. But listen. Listen carefully. Your privileges are much, much greater. Your privileges are much greater than those of Israel. Your privileges are much greater even than those Jews who were able to hear and see Jesus for themselves. You live after the events of the resurrection and after the founding establishment of the church. You have the whole Canon of God's word. Never has there been a time in history or a culture on earth than ours that has more access to God's Word and to faithful teaching of God's word than you. Many people groups around the world do not have never even heard the name of Jesus, let alone have a Bible in their own language. How many Bibles do you own? C.H. Spurgeon said that there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write out the word damnation. How many Bibles do you have? Do you read the Bible? Do you study the Bible? Do you pray the Bible? How many solid theological books do you have on your shelf? They're not going to help you if they're on your shelf. You go to a church where God's word is central. You have access to the teaching of of countless faithful men throughout history. You have the means of grace. But what are you doing with these privileges? Are you bearing fruit that corresponds with these privileges? What fruit can God rightly expect in your life? If you're unfaithful with such privileges... You are on dangerous ground indeed. Are you taking nutrients from the soil without bearing any fruit? Are the other plants around you lacking, lacking and suffering because of you? Are you bearing fruit or are you taking up room? Are you receiving ministry from the church but making no effort to change? Now, I'm not talking about people here who are struggling with sin. I'm talking about people who, are, who aren't are even trying to fight against sin. Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? I feel I need to say this for genuine Christians who are struggling with, with assurance and who have more tender consciences. I want to offer you this encouragement. I, I want to to tell you another fruit tree illustration. My pastor, when I was in seminary, Ryan Fullerton, would tell us the illustration of a, of a, of a peach tree that he had in his yard. He actually did have a peach tree in his yard. And, and he, he said, if I was to, to go out into my yard in in early June and, and find these, these little nubs of peaches, immature fruit on this tree, so he's not going to cut it down. He, he's encouraged to see that there's yeah, it's not mature, but there's fruit. It's a little bitty fruit. And you wouldn't want to eat it, but it's fruit on this tree. And now if he comes back in July, and there's still nothing but little nubby peaches on this tree, he'll know that there is a problem. When it comes to the time of fruitfulness that that there is, it's, there is a time for maturing. It doesn't just happen. And, and the reality is we're all immature. Some of us have immature fruit in every way. You need to be very, very careful. And brothers and sisters, do do not be discouraged if you're only seeing little nubby peaches. If you're a Christian, you will bear fruit in due season. So be very careful because because you aren't the best judge of your own fruit, for good or for ill. You aren't the best judge of, of your maturity. That's one of the reasons God has given you the local church. That's one of the reasons God has given you pastors to, to, to shepherd you. So we need to look for other people's fruit and, and not to go around as a fruit inspector. We need to look for other people's fruit, not to, to beat them down, but to build them up. We, we, we need to be on the lookout to recognize the fruit of the Spirit in each other's lives. We need to make a point to, to glorify God and encourage one another by telling them when you see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. It's so much easier to see what's wrong. By God's grace and our humility, let's look for what's right in one another. But for these trees... That persist in unfruitfulness, year after year, failing to produce food, fruit, what will the landowner do? So with that, let's let's see the let's see how, how Jesus develops the doctrine of God in verses eight and nine. I think if we're honest, we'd expect, let's say, after three years, cut it down. Get that tree out of here. vine dresser responds. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Now the owner of the vineyard has been very patient. You know, I don't think most of us would allow a tree to stand after three years of unfruitfulness. Talk to Vince about that. I think if he has a peach trees in his yard or cherry trees or apple trees or whatever that they're unfruitful for that long, I think it, it's It's natural to remove it. But I know that Vince is not going to do that until he has tried everything he can to nurture this tree. And that's what the vine dresser suggests. He suggests even more patience. The vine dresser intercedes for the fig tree. Now in this part of the parable some see see God as demanding justice and Jesus pleading for mercy. Well, justice and mercy are clearly two attributes of God, but they are not opposed to one another. The justice of God and the mercy of God are, they are both attributes of God, and they're like two sides of the same coin. And furthermore, by saying that that God is demanding something and Jesus is demanding something else, well, what is that doing to the Godhead? That's dividing the Godhead. Friends, Jesus is God. There is one will in God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and one will. It's not as though the Father is full of wrath and Jesus is full of mercy, or the God God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and Jesus is full of mercy. That is not the biblical account of God. We need to, when we look at Scripture, we need to hold up all of the attributes of God. And yes, to to our way of thinking and in in my weak and finite mind. I can't understand sometimes how all that fits together. But we, we hold to the biblical testimony of who God is. I'm okay with not being able to figure it all out because I'm not God. God the Father is just and merciful. God the Son is, ju- is just and merciful because there is just one God. Jesus does seek mercy for the elect. He, he prays for them. In John 17, 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me. They are yours. Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Romans eight thirty four. The Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints as well. Romans 8, 26 and 27. But then why does God do this? Why does God allow this unfruitful tree to go on living for even one second longer? It's because of the goodness or the kindness of God. Romans 2, 24, and the King James says, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And the ESV renders it, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So when it comes to unfruitful trees, we could here be talking about about unfruitful elect trees and unfruitful non-elect trees, And it's different. The goodness or the kindness of God is different on the elect versus others. Elect and non-elect, unfruitful trees, both experience the goodness of God in His patience. Believers, fruitful trees, on the other hand, experience God's goodness in His mercy and His grace and His love. So then we, we have two categories here. I guess three categories. We have the unfruitful trees, and then subdivided into two kinds of trees. Unfruitful trees that are elect, who will come to saving faith, and unfruitful trees that are not elect, that will never come to saving faith. And we have the fruitful trees. So the these unfruitful trees do experience the, the goodness of God in His patience. And the fruitful trees experience God's grace in His, or God's goodness in His grace and His mercy and His love. But they're all experiencing the goodness of God. And that's why unfruitful trees are not cut down immediately where they stand. Now we're getting to the fundamentals of the attributes of God, something that Rabbi Kushner has completely missed. As a rabbi, he was surely aware of the interaction between Moses and God in Exodus 34, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the Lord declared in verses 5 to 7, So how does Moses respond at God's self-revelation? He quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. Rabbi Kushner should have responded in the same way. You and I should respond in the same way as well. We should respond in worship before the face of God, no matter what happens in our lives whether we experience suffering or whether we experience great joys, We bow our face to the ground and worship. I had a friend who, who used to say when when you asked him how he's doing, he would say, better than I deserve. Do you have that approach? When, when when somebody asks you how you're doing, do you say or think better than I deserve or, or do you think about a, a laundry list of of problems, or even possibly a list of blessings, but the reality it's all better than you deserve. Anything better than hell is better than you and I deserve. Anything better than hell in this life is better than you and I deserve. And anything better than hell for the unbeliever, every moment that the unbeliever, that the the person who is unelected will never come to saving faith, any moment that they spend that they are not in hell, they are blessed infinitely because they are experiencing the patience of God. We need to have a biblical understanding of who God is in his self-revelation, in his word. Question seven of the Baptist Catechism asks, what is God? Again, okay, every time I do this, I want to sing. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit. John 4:24. God is infinite. Job 11, 7 to 9. God is eternal, Psalm 110.2. God is unchangeable, James 1.17. In his being, Exodus 3.14. In his wisdom, Psalm 147.5. In his power, Revelation 4.8. In his holiness, Revelation 15.4. In his justice, goodness, and truth, Exodus 34.6. As we just read, it's all right there in the Bible. The word of God from Genesis to Revelation, reveals who God is in his being and his works. And Kushner believes that God is good, but not sovereign. He says, again, I can worship a God who hates suffering, but cannot eliminate it. More easily than that I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. So do you see what he's saying there? He went through the horror of losing his son and That must have been absolutely horrific. It has to be one of the worst things that people can experience in this life is the death of a child. But he went the wrong way. He drew the wrong conclusion. So why do bad things happen to good people is the wrong question. Rather, we should be asking why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Again, why does God not cast sinners immediately into hell? Why does God not pour out His holy wrath on you and me right now? And I'm not just talking about unbelievers here. No matter how sanctified you or I are, it is what you and I deserve at this very moment. The most holy person among us the most righteous living person, the most worshipful person among us is still infinitely less righteous than what God requires. Infinitely less righteous than what God requires as we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the Christian. Why does God pour out his blessings on us? Why does God bless us with the opportunity to know him? Why does God bless us with the opportunity to to worship him, to fellowship with him? Why does he bless us with the rights and privileges of adopted sons and daughters? And then for unbelievers, why does God provide them with food and clothing and shelter, even the very air that they breathe? Why does God make his son to rise on the evil and the good? Why does he send rain on the just and the unjust? Matthew uh, 5.45. It's because of his goodness. Because of God's goodness. In the second half of verse 8, we see how the vine dresser treats the unfruitful tree. Again, 2,000 years, I, I don't think that agriculture has changed a whole lot in this regard. He says that he's going to care for it. He's going to to dig around the roots. He's going to aerate the soil. He's going to fertilize it. Vince, again, could talk to you in volumes about what that means. He's going to care for this tree. He's going to give this tree more privileges even than it already had. And we see this in the church, don't we? So we, we don't just, just quickly cast the person out. We, we give them more teaching from God's word. We, we give them discipleship. We nurture them in order to help them produce fruit. And if the person continues to walk in unrepentant sin, then we begin a process of church discipline which is not as it is characterized. It is a loving approach of someone that you, you want them to repent. This is, you hope this is going to be a means of grace to help them to see their sin and to repent. And, and so you follow the, the process of church discipline, which is, is different depending on, on the circumstance. But you hope that the person is going to come to repentance and to begin to bear fruit. And it's all God's goodness. God has been patient for three years. You know, I'm sure after, after three years of, of something like this, you and I would say, well, well, my patience is, is enough. That's, it just, it's just gone too far. I've, I've got no more patience for that. But what does God do? He extends his patience just as he does to you and me. He's going to continue to be patient. Again, the unrepentant have not escaped judgment so far, not because of God's approval, as these people who came to Jesus wrongly concluded, because of God's patience. And again this reveals the error of these people. They, they, because they had not suffered, they assumed that they are under God's favor. Well now in verse 9, we see specifically the difference between the elect and the non-elect unfruitful trees. And we also see the difference in their destination. If it's an elect tree, Look what's going to happen. Verse 9. If it should bear fruit next year, well and good. So if through this, this process of, of being cared for this, this, and discipled, this, this person begins to, to exhibit fruit, then praise God. This, this person is, is showing themselves to be a believer in, in the way that they are now walking in, in growth and repentance and faith. They're showing themselves to, to, to want to live for the glory of God and to, and to love and to serve others. Praise God when that happens. And this tree, this person, now becomes the... the it, sorry, it, 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 at some point here, you could also find in, in the course of people who are, are not looking like believers because they are not believers because they're not bearing fruit because they're not yet saved. It's the same for these people, because somewhere along the line, through this process of, of caring for discipling, this person might just come to saving faith. And they too will then begin to show fruit in keeping with repentance, well and good. God is glorified. But, in other cases, This tree does not bear fruit. It continues now after the fourth year to not bear fruit. And it proves, in this case, to be a tree that is so diseased or spiritually, in a sense, dead that it cannot, it will not produce fruit. So it's cut down. It experiences judgment. And it may, it may happen quickly, or it may be delayed. But unless they come to repentance, they it will come. They will come under God's judgment. They must repent, or perish. And again, in this we see the doctrine of God. In this we see God's holiness. In the judgment of sinners, we see we see that God is a holy God. We see that God is a just God, that that God must punish sin. We see that God is righteous, that that He will will bring out His perfect righteousness on the heads of those who have not turned to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Again, the reality is that none of us are as fruitful as we ought to be given the privileges that we have. And so God has given us each other. God has given us The means of grace of fellowship. God has given us his word. God has given us prayer. God has has indwelt us with his spirit in order to empower us to, to abide in Christ and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God has given us the Lord's Supper. Also as a means of grace to remind us of the gospel. Of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. Rabbi Kushner could could not understand who God is because of the suffering of his son. You see how close Rabbi Kushner was to the truth? Because there was another son who suffered. There was another son who died. this son was sinless. The son is righteous. This son is the son of God. The problem is not why do good things happen to bad people? So the problem is not why do bad things happen to good people? It is the issue is why do good things happen? Happened to bad people? Because of Jesus Christ. Good things happen to bad people because of Jesus Christ. Because there was one good person. And bad things happen to that good person for bad people like you and me. If you want to understand who God is in all of his attributes, look to the cross of Christ. Because on the one hand, you see God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice, and God's wrath for sin. And on the other, you see God's goodness in his love and his mercy and his patience and his grace. If you want to understand who God is, look to Jesus Christ. Look to God incarnate. Who, is, who reveals to us the very face of God and who revealed to us the very character of God in his suffering for our sin. You and I deserve the cup of God's wrath overflowing for all eternity. But Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you and me if we were just to get an empty cup from God we would be most blessed because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for our sins but God does not just give us an empty cup does he He instead gives us a cup that's overflowing with blessings This is who God is. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who we worship. This is the God who we want to display the fruit of repentance with for the glory of his name, that he might get the glory that he deserves. Will God empower us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance so we can show others how great God is? we can show others who God is. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the gospel. For in the gospel, we see you. In the gospel, we see all of your attributes most powerfully displayed. Help us, I pray, through the work of your Holy Spirit, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance so that your name might be exalted through us. Make us instruments of your grace as those who have received grace. Make us reflections of your glory for the glory of your name, for the advance of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.